Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Alice Su, The Economist Senior China Correspondent based in Taipei. This week, my co-host David Rennie is away, so I'm joined by Don Wineland, The Economist China Business and Finance Editor in Shanghai. We're going to be looking at how companies can make it big in Xi Jinping's China. China's economic recovery is sputtering and foreign businesses are coming under greater government scrutiny. But there is a new herd of startups disconnected from the outside world, which are booming. China's unicorns are thriving in strategic industries like AI, semiconductors, and advanced robotics. This week, we're asking, what do these unicorns say about the future of Chinese tech? This is Drum Tower from The Economist. Hello, Don. Welcome to Drum Tower. Hey, Alice. How's it going? It's good. It's our first time doing an episode with a guest co-host, so I'm very excited to have you here. How's the mood in Shanghai right now? It's okay. The weather is starting to get hot, so we're kind of losing that really nice spring weather. Mm. On another front, though, things are not looking so great right now. You know, the economic recovery is starting to fizzle a little bit coming out of zero COVID, and foreign businesses are a bit nervous right now. Yeah, I'm actually recording this from Tokyo, where I've just been at this conference, and there were quite a few consulting firm CEOs there who were telling me they had upcoming trips planned to China, and they're a little bit unsure about whether they should go or not. They're worried about the newly expanded espionage law, and we've seen all this news about raids and people being questioned and so on. Yeah, so that's kind of the problem right now. So over the past couple of weeks, several foreign consulting firms, firms that do due diligence or investigations for foreign companies have been raided. Understandably, that's driving a lot of fear for foreign companies that are trying to do business here in China. So on the one hand, there is this trope that you're hearing, you know, what is going on in China? This is not going to be good for investment. It's not going to be good for business. But at the same time, Don, we wanted to have you on this week because you recently wrote an article about Chinese unicorns, companies that are making it big in Xi Jinping's China today. I want to hear about that. But first, tell me, what is a unicorn? Sure. So a unicorn, very simply, is a company that is private, so it's not listed, and it's valued at over a billion dollars. What was the boom that you've been noticing? Like, Why did you decide to write this piece about Chinese unicorns? People write about the startup scene here in China or in Silicon Valley all the time. Unicorns often get focused on because they are the companies that are most likely to go public in the near future. So I wanted to take a look at how the scene for these companies, these very valuable startups, had changed over the past five years. So I took a look at what unicorns looked like in 2017. And then I compared that with the list of unicorns in 2022, so last year. And what did you find? 
The most striking thing is that the sectors that unicorns are focused in has changed dramatically since 2017. If you go back to 2017, you'll find that unicorns were focused in e-commerce and the area that we generally refer to as consumer internet. So that's delivery. It's companies like Meituan and JD.com, which is doing a lot of online sales. These types of companies were at the top of the Chinese tech industry in 2017. Yeah. And I remember when there was this big tech crackdown that happened starting in around 2020, there's a lot of talk like, oh, you know, this is the end of the tech startup scene in China. Xi Jinping is against tech startups. But that's not necessarily true, right? There is still a very active startup scene. Only now, the sectors that are succeeding and that have a lot more unicorns, according to your reporting, are different. That's right. So over the past five years, the unicorns have essentially doubled, really pushing back against this idea that uh, the tech sector has been destroyed in China. What are those startups? What kinds of industries are they in? The number of e-commerce companies within the group has gotten smaller. Some industries have been completely wiped out. So fintech has gotten much smaller. Education tech has just completely disappeared. There are no education tech startups valued at a billion dollars in China anymore. Right. And that's not surprising because I remember Xi Jinping had this big crackdown on the tutoring sector as part of his drive for common prosperity. There was this idea that tutoring creates inequality and so we should not have this anymore. And then suddenly this enormous industry was wiped out. But Don, what are the industries in which you are seeing a lot of new unicorns? So all the new activity is pretty much concentrated in areas that the government favors or has been favoring over the past couple of years. These are semiconductors, artificial intelligence, robotics, health tech, green technology, and new energy. So Don, have you been to any of these companies? You know, what do these startups actually look and feel like? I have visited them. That's one of the nice things about being one of the few foreign correspondents in China right now, you can actually go visit these companies. So yeah, I've been to several. To be perfectly honest, they're very similar to startups I think you would find elsewhere in the world. You know, there's a bunch of young people sitting around hot desks doing their thing. Are they like drinking blue bottle coffee and wearing Patagonia jackets like in Silicon Valley? It's definitely very casual. People are in t-shirts. I don't remember seeing any bean bags. <laughs> But it wouldn't surprise me. Okay, so there are some kind of superficial similarities there, but what is different about these startups? So one thing that has changed massively since 2017 is that the state is a lot more involved in these companies. State-owned enterprises have taken a lot more stakes in startups. They're very active in incubating or seeding new companies. There's also a lot of state-backed funds with a lot of money that have invested in these companies. So if you go back to 2017, this trend hadn't really picked up yet. The startups were very much focused around the biggest Chinese tech companies, Alibaba, Tencent, Baidu. In our research, we found that their importance as uh, investors in startups and in unicorns has really fallen over the past five years. And the state has increased quite significantly. Wow, okay, so state-owned companies 
are now playing a much bigger role and owning a lot more of these startups. I mean, what does that mean? How does that influence their decision making and their operations? So in the past, a state-owned enterprise might create uh, subsidiaries that they own outright. You know, they would take a 100% stake in a new subsidiary and basically tell it what to do. By creating startups like this, the new companies have to go to the market and take an investment from other investors that are not necessarily state-affiliated. And what this does is it brings in influence from other places. So it's not necessarily 100% state-influenced. I would think that this would have a good impact on the way that these companies operate because they're bringing in investments sometimes from professional investors, sometimes from other private tech companies. So in a way, this is really bringing together state-dominated activity and market-based activity. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, this kind of fusion. And when you say that they're going to be influenced by private sources of investment, I would imagine it also means they have to prove that they're a good investment, right? So they have to perform well. So one of the most important questions for these startups right now is, you know, whether the market is doing its job. In other places, private investors, private equity funds, venture capital funds, they should be going out and choosing the best companies to invest in. I don't doubt that that's happening here. I think that there's probably a lot of good investment going on. On the other hand, it's very likely that some companies are investing simply because the startup is linked with a state-owned company. State-owned companies have a lot of advantages. They have great connections. They can cut down on red tape. So there are certainly advantages to being linked with a state-owned company. But Don, I want to ask about foreign investors. What role do they play? Are they at all involved in these unicorns? There is some involvement, but I think one important trend over the past five years as these tech companies have grown is that there's probably less and less foreign investment going into some of these companies. And there's a number of reasons for this. One thing is linked to sanctions, and it's very difficult for American companies to invest in certain types of critical technology in China. And this is pressure coming from both sides. So the Chinese government doesn't want American investors invested in top semiconductor companies. And you know, at the same time, the American government probably doesn't want American investors backing a Chinese semiconductor company. So there's a lot of pressure on this right now. Another thing to say is we don't know where the policy is going to go in the future on either side. So foreign investors are anticipating big changes that could affect these types of investments. So it's fair to say that they're definitely staying back and they're not nearly as involved as they might have been five years ago. Actually, this reminds me of a Drum Tower episode we did a while back after the two sessions with Simon Cox, our colleague. And we were talking about how Xi Jinping is moving towards an economy that is shaped by emphasis on national security and also focused on this idea of national greatness. And we discussed how Xi Jinping wants Chinese businesses to basically follow the lead of the state and to focus on industries that are, you know, not frivolous things like dating apps or e-commerce or what have you, but serious hard tech that's going to enhance Chinese power. And I'm just wondering, do you think that that's what we're seeing play out now? I mean, is this that national greatness and security economy starting to happen before us? I think it is. I think that if we go back and we look at a lot of the language that was used in policy statements over the past five years, a lot of what we're seeing play out now in the tech sector was kind of outlined 
in those statements in years past. So yeah, national greatness economy is all about self-reliance and moving to the top of a number of different industries like semiconductors and robotics. You know, these are areas that China wants to own in the future and be ahead of the U.S. and Europe. Right. And Don, one of these phrases that I've seen pop up quite a lot in government speeches is the disorderly expansion of capital. It's something that Xi Jinping has mentioned that needs to be curbed. What does that phrase mean? Yeah, this has come up a lot. If you go back to 2017, yet again, you see a lot of capital flowing into these industries like consumer internet. And basically what was happening was investors were pouring money into these companies and the companies were using that cash to subsidize, you know, so they were paying for people's meals. They were paying for people's cab rides. The government thinks that this is a huge waste of money. This idea of the disorderly expansion of capital is that capital needs to be more controlled and it needs to take cues from the communist party and understand what is the national direction of travel. And it needs to hew to that, to follow where the trend is going. And that explains this unicorn trend very well. If we're to believe that the state and the party have taken more control of capital, and we're seeing it flow into the types of companies that they think are the most important. And how do Chinese entrepreneurs feel about this shift where the state is now marking priority targets for capital flow? Are they happy about that? I guess it depends on whether they're in one of those selected fields, right? Exactly. So if you were a fintech entrepreneur or, God forbid, a, an education technology entrepreneur, things don't look that great for you right now. You're probably looking for jobs in, in other industries because the government has clearly shown that that is not the place that should be attracting investments. But if your background is software design or robotics or semiconductor manufacturing, I mean, this is probably a pretty good time to be in China in one of these cities that are producing all these companies. Yeah. And what's really interesting is that some of these Key industries are also the exact same ones where the U.S. government has been trying to keep China down with its export controls. That's right. So probably the hottest industry right now in Chinese technology or the, or the one that the government is focusing on the most is semiconductors. And that, of course, is because it's a weakness in the Chinese economy. It's a weakness in China's level of technology. China just can't manufacture the most sophisticated chips right now. And the reason why the government is prioritizing this right now is because it wants China to be able to do this in the future. Yeah. And to be clear, the U.S. government placed export controls on the technology or, or parts for her manufacturing those advanced chips. But this is also where China is trying very, very hard to catch up. It's actually kind of similar to this PLA Air Force movie that we watched and discussed a few weeks ago, where in that movie, China was trying very hard to get to the next generation of fighter jet again so that they could catch up with America so that they can be on the same level. Yeah, that's totally right. So this is born to fly, but it's not fighter jets. It's little pieces of silicon. It's really interesting looking at the growth in this industry. So, you know, if you go back to 2017, there's not a single startup that's making semiconductors that was valued at over a billion dollars. Fast forward to 2022, the list that we were using showed that there were about 30, 32 semiconductor companies that were now valued at a billion dollars. There's a state published list that says that there's 50 
of these companies. So yeah, I mean, it's quite an amazing development. In fact, some people might ask, is this too good to believe? Are all these companies actually doing something that is going to lead to a breakthrough? Are they all going to help fulfill the national greatness economy? And I think that's a really key question for the next five years. So I think that is what everyone really wants to know, right? Is China going to succeed in breaking through and making some of these advanced chips by pouring all this money into the industry? Or is this just a big bubble? Is there any way to try and answer that question right now? I think the best we can do right now is look at some of the top unicorns. So my pick for that is Changxin Memory. They've been in the news recently because they might do an IPO and they're making some of the most advanced chips in China. We'll be back in a moment to look at this leading unicorn, Changxin Memory, and to think about whether it is on the way to making the chips that China needs. You can read much more about China in The Economist. This week, we have a special interview with Henry Kissinger on his 100th birthday. He spoke to our editor-in-chief and deputy editor for eight hours about how America and China can avoid confrontation. You'll find that article on our website, and you can also hear their conversation in a special podcast. You'll find it wherever you listen. To enjoy all our journalism, you'll need to be a subscriber. If you're not already, then we've got a free 30-day digital subscription just for our listeners. Visit economist.com slash drum offer to find out more. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. So, Don, you've just been telling me about China's 300 new unicorns, which is double the number that there were five years ago. And approximately 30 of them are chip companies. We're going to zoom in on one of them, and it's called Changxin Memory. Yeah, Changxin is really interesting. There's been some reporting on them potentially doing an IPO at a valuation of about $14 billion. That's pretty big. One thing about chip companies these days in China is that it's very hard to talk with them, possibly for good reasons. You know, they don't want to be in the media. They don't want to be targeted by overseas regulators. They really don't want anyone to know what their capabilities are. Of course, Changxin will have to say more about what it can do if it wants to do an IPO. But Changxin Memory does have some promotional materials, right? So I've never talked with people at Changxin Memory, and it's quite difficult these days for foreign journalists to get into chip companies and really understand what's going on. They're very secretive. There are other ways of understanding them. So we've found some videos that the company has made and some videos made by their employees. And I think this gives us a look inside the company.
Wow, okay, so basically in this video, there's this very dramatic music and then you see this high-tech city with a lot of high-rises and the voiceover says, you know, in a smart society of rapid change, DRAM chips are the foundation of the information age and then you see a rocket like launching and then it says Changxin was established in 2016 in Hefei. And it's kind of surprising to me because it's not how I remember Hefei, but I haven't been to Hefei for a long time, I have to say, but... It's not the cutting edge of Chinese cities, is what I would say. Yeah, if the last time you went to Hefei was 10 years ago or so, uh, you probably wouldn't recognize Hefei right now. So it used to be known as kind of a backwater. It was one of the poorer provinces in China for a long time, despite being geographically quite close to Shanghai and the Yangtze River Delta. I mean, this is one of the things about this new generation of unicorns. They're really spread out all across the country. There's quite a few in Hefei. Hefei has a huge auto industry now. It's supply chain for auto parts and for the chips that go into the autos is world-class. Yeah, I think a lot of people would be surprised by how far along a lot of these second-tier, third-tier, maybe even fourth-tier cities have come along in developing some of this industry. Yeah, and maybe that's an advantage too of having more state direction in industrial development, right, is that you can kind of spread it out. It's very much part of the policy to move industry from these hubs of business, Shanghai, Guangzhou, Beijing, Hangzhou, and to have it spread across the country to less developed areas. Yet again, if you're looking at the state policy and you're looking at where these highly valued startups are popping up, it really matches the policy. Yeah. And Don, what do you make of their emphasis in the commercial on DRAM chips, the foundation of the information age? Yeah, so the DRAM memory chips that Changxin makes, they're the most advanced in China. So this is the most important DRAM memory company in China. The level that they're producing at, so they produce chips at a 20 billionth of a meter, so 20 nanometers. For China, it's really good. It's cutting edge. For the top chip makers like TSMC, it's way behind. Yeah, and of course, for me, I'm based in Taiwan, so naturally I think about TSMC, it's Taiwan's most important company, and it's the top manufacturer of advanced chips, and they're moving towards two nanometer technology. And in chip making, the smaller the number, the more advanced your chips are. So despite all this money China has been pouring into its chip industry, they still have a long way to go. And that's also why one thing that Chinese companies have been doing is to try very hard to poach and to recruit engineers and executives from Taiwanese companies in hopes that if they get the human talent, they might get some of the know-how. Yeah, so we found a recruitment video for Changxin on the Chinese version of TikTok, which is called Douyin. It's really interesting. Yeah, you know, Don, it's funny because we just talked about how the chip industry is one of these important sectors for national greatness and China needs to catch up to America. But in the Douyin video where they're recruiting young people to join the company, it's not at all about that. It's like, you might think that factories are boring, but come to Changxin memory, like this is the Tianhuaban, this is the ceiling, like the best kind of factory you could imagine. And then you see these like girls doing a k-pop routine on stage and basically they're saying like there's music festivals here there's all kinds of clubs there's a football club a fishing club it's just like your college life and it's kind of really appealing to 
maybe young Chinese people's sense of individualism. It's like you'll come here and you, you'll find that entering a factory doesn't mean that you're just a cog in the machine. You get to do all kinds of fun things and express yourself and have a good time. It's not all fun and games, I guess, for some of these employees. We found this video of this new employee unboxing his starter pack. He has a pretty potent statement that he makes as he's doing this. I think it does sound like he is just repeating a slogan he's heard a lot of times maybe at work. He's like, oh, I'm a new employee. Here's my box of goodies. He has like a desktop calendar, a pen, a book about semiconductor manufacturing. And then he says offhand at the end, oh, this is a meaningful book. And may our Chinese semiconductor companies prevail over the sanctions. The way that he says it, you can tell this is something that is in the back of everyone's minds or it's something that their bosses are telling them. So, Don, how does the local government, say in Hefei or in Anhui province, how do they talk about these big new companies and these big investments coming into their area? Yeah, I mean, one of the main things that local governments, one thing they're trying to do right now is attract companies like Changxin. So we found an interesting video from CCTV2. They have a finance show, and they're talking with the party secretary from Hefei, Yuai Hua. This is from 2021. He's talking about local industry and how important it is to attract investment. Yeah, this is really interesting. He says that government officials first consider direction of industry development and direction of state policy, and then they consider the technology. And he makes this comparison where he says it's like ba mic, like taking a pulse in traditional Chinese medicine. You take the pulse and then you decide what to do. But here, you know, the pulse he's taking, it's not the pulse of supply and demand. It's the pulse of how the blood is pumping at the highest levels of the government. Exactly. And this, of course, connects back to the flows of capital. We were talking earlier about disorderly expansion of capital. Here he's talking about the direction of capital that the state has laid out. So, Don, we've been kind of looking at these videos, trying to understand how this company sells itself. And what we know is that Changxin and these other unicorns you've been looking at are attracting vast amounts of money. But we still, or at least I still, can't get a grasp on how much progress they've actually made in achieving the kinds of technological breakthroughs that the government wants them to make. And I guess my bigger question is, is all of this just a bubble? Is it just the government saying put money here and so money goes there? Or does the existence of the unicorns actually show that China's new innovation economy is working and that they are really making progress in groundbreaking ways? This is one of the biggest questions for the Chinese economy for the next five, 10 years, I think. So the government has really put this big bet on these technologies paying off. And a lot of these companies actually producing the breakthroughs that they need to dominate in AI and in robotics and in semiconductors in the next generation of global competition. We really don't know how it's going to pan out. And we've seen examples of how it doesn't really work very well. So within the past year and a half, a couple very big semiconductor companies have just collapsed. 
These are companies that were taking on a lot of government investment. There was fraud behind the companies and there were big problems. Naturally, people are asking, how widespread are these types of problems? How many companies have attracted investment simply because they are linked to a state-owned company or they've attracted government investment somewhere else and therefore have been more attractive to private investors? I mean, it's a trillion-dollar question in some ways how this pans out. It's a trillion-dollar question, but I mean, Don, do you have a hunch for which way it's going to go? I think we should definitely be taking this seriously. I mean, governments around the world should really be looking at the sectors that China is developing well. I mean, there are many companies that are already ahead in new energy, batteries and that area, electric vehicles. My hunch is that a lot of these investments will work out and they will produce some breakthrough technology. I also think that when we look at this, when we step back 10 years from now and we consider the amount of money that has gone in to all of these industries, we might realize that the efficiency of these investments has actually been quite low. A lot of money has been wasted and it cost China a lot to produce these breakthroughs. I see. So they may succeed, but with a lot of inefficiencies, with a lot of waste. That may be worth it for the Chinese leadership. It depends on the type of breakthrough that they make. If they end up creating entirely new industries, it could very well be worth it. If they end up matching or marginally beating their American competitors, I don't know if it will necessarily be worth the cost. Mm, yeah, and to spend that much or to allow that much waste at a time when growth is slowing and when life is not that easy for a lot of ordinary Chinese people. It sounds like a big risk that Xi Jinping is taking. Don, thank you so much for coming on the show and for sharing your insights with us. Thanks, Alice. It was really fun. Thank you to everyone who has been emailing us. Remember, you can always send us your questions or comments at drum at economist.com. And we have a favor to ask our listeners. At The Economist, we're always trying to improve our podcasts, and we'd like to hear from you. Tell us what you think about Drum Tower by filling out our listener survey. It only takes a few minutes. To take part, visit economist.com slash drum survey. Our editor is Poppy Seabag Montefiore. Alicia Burrell and Barkley Bram produced this episode. Sound design is by Ting Lee Lim, and our music was composed by Jocelyn Tan. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.